We are looking at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 this morning. We looked at the last, the first six verses last week, and we will look at the rest of the chapter this week. But before we dive into our text this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin studying Genesis chapter 15 together? Father in heaven, this is your word. We need your spirit to illuminate our minds that we may understand it together. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would guide our thinking together, that you would guard my lips so that if there is anything that I might say that would be unhelpful, that you would prevent it, and that you would cause me to speak that which will be not just uplifting, but that it will be true, challenging, that your word may harm and heal us, that it will wound and bind us up, that we together may grow this morning in our love for you and our thankfulness for what you have done. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As some of you know, I... uh, As I grew up, I had two older sisters. In fact, I I still have two older sisters to this day. But because they were two older sisters, that often meant that in our home, when we watched TV as a family, that my dad often allowed my sisters and my mom to determine what we watched, which meant we watched a lot of Anne of Green Gables and Jane Eyre and... Pride of prejudice, pride and prejudice, and I have to be honest, I had quite a bit of prejudice against those kinds of movies. But as we got older, the movies changed into a new kind of horror for me as a teenage kid. Uh, they wanted to watch musicals like The Sound of Music and Oklahoma and uh, My Fair Lady and whatever Doris Day was singing at the time. Um, it, they loved those old movies and they loved singing those songs. So when a few years ago my wife asked if we could watch the new production of Les Miserables, I was not really interested in watching a musical. I had flashbacks to sitting with my sisters and hearing them echo and sing along with the TV, the hills being alive. You know? I was dead inside, but they were singing about the hills. But I was amazed. I'd never seen the movie. I'd never seen the reproduction or the Broadway reproduction. I had never read the book, and it is a book. But there were several scenes in that play, in that film, that were, that were moving. And the book unpacks them even more. But it centers on this character, Jean Valjean, who is a criminal and he, he is serving out his sentence of 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread, which seems rather harsh. He is finally released after serving his sentence. And in being released, he finds that he is not able, and this is true for many who have endured prison, that it becomes extremely difficult for him to find any work. 
No one trusts him. No one will take him in. Very few people will help him. And once they see that he has this mark of prison on his record, they want nothing to do with him. He calls it in the book his mark of Cain. It follows him wherever he goes. It was a curse to him. One evening he finds himself in a monastery and there he is taken in and shown hospitality that he's not shown anywhere else. He is allowed to sit and eat with the bishop, Bishop Mariel. And as he sits and eats, they don't bring out the cheap silverware, but the nice silverware, the silver silverware, with the silver candlestick sitting on the table. And of course, some of the attendants and the people who are there are nervous about the fact that they are, have with them a, a clearly impoverished criminal in their presence. And yet the bishop is intent, deliberate on showing some mercy to this man. And, and so he gives them not only food and eats with them, but then he gives them a place to stay that night. And predictably, Jean Valjean steals the silverware. In a panic, he, he runs out without grabbing the, the candlesticks themselves. And soon, the next day, when the bishop and the attendants wake up and they see what's going on, they're eating with wooden silverware, bemoaning the fact that he, that their generosity had been taken advantage of. Jean Valjean is returned to the door of the bishop of the monastery by a couple of policemen. And there they relay the story that they had seen him running suspiciously. They stop him. They find this bag of silverware. And Jean Valjean's story is that it was the bishop he gave it to him, which wasn't true. And the policemen found it suspicious. And so they drag him back and they want confirmation from this, of the story from the bishop. And the bishop, when he sees what's happening, he jumps up and rather than condemning Jean Valjean, he, he tells him, you forgot to take with you the candlesticks in your rush to leave so early this morning. Take them now for they will fetch you a good price. The constables, the, the, the police are totally thrown off. The story was true. Jean Valjean was thrown off even more. Here he was expecting condemnation. And in, his, and in the place, he found mercy. He was rightfully a criminal in truth at this point. If before he had served a 20-year sentence for stealing bread, now he rightfully should have served some time for stealing the silver. And yet, there is mercy. And that mercy, that grace, is pictured in our text this morning. We ourselves deserve judgment. We ourselves deserve punishment. We ourselves deserve God's wrath. And yet, God shows grace. God does something for us which we could never do ourselves. And our text for us highlights it in an incredible way, but also in a way that on first reading, especially 21st century here in the West, it is unusual, maybe even appalling for us. But we'll take a look at the text this morning. And I hope is that it will 
in it, in seeing what we have here, what God reveals to us here, we will find our, our hearts lifted up, encouraged, challenged. And we will learn to trust afresh in our God and all that he has done. And Genesis 15 records for us two exchanges. We looked at the first set of exchanges last week. It starts with God giving a promise to Abram and Abram responding with a a bit of concern, a bit of doubt, a fear that he has about still remaining childless. God responds to that doubt, that fear, that concern by expanding the promise that he gives to Abram. And Abram, in turn, believes that promise And on the basis of that faith, God credits him with righteousness. In our text last week, we explored that idea of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But there is another set of exchanges that happens this week. God begins with a promise. Abram Abram responds with another concern, another doubt, another fear. And God expands on that earlier promise in some amazing ways. And it is for us this morning to believe and to respond appropriately. So look with me at chapter 15, verse 7 this morning. There we read, Then he, this is the Lord, Then he said to him, that's Abram, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. And the Lord begins here, just as he began in verse 1. Here we have this revelation, God giving us a revelation, giving Abram a revelation of himself. And and we just have to stop here for a moment and, and grapple with this truth that unless God tells us who he is, we would never know of him. Unless God speaks, we would never be able to grasp who he is. We might, according to Romans chapter 1, we might be able to sense that he is powerful, that he is eternal, merely by observing things in nature. But the the vast glory of his graces, the, the depth of his character and of his attributes, we would be blind to. But God does speak. And that makes all the difference. And God speaks and he says, I am the Lord. I am, and the, the name that he gives here is I am Yahweh. The Latinized version of that that may come to us is I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. This is the name by which God will establish his, his covenant, a, a covenant relationship with his people. And we'll explore that more in, in just a bit because this is the foundation for God's covenant with Abram and with Israel. But this name Yahweh occurs more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament alone. It is one of the most, the most actually common name that the Lord uses to, de- to describe himself with. And it speaks of his unchanging nature, his eternal nature. That is, you do not, and I do not, none of us add anything to God at any time. He needs nothing from us, nothing and no one adds anything to him, and nothing and no one takes anything away. He is simply the Lord. I am the Lord. 
some of you struggle with after many years of marriage. What do you buy that special someone? They, they don't really want anything. What do, you, what do you buy them, you know? What do you get God when he, you can give him nothing? We contribute nothing to him, nor do we subtract from him. He is the Lord. And so anything that God does for us is purely by grace, not because he needs us in some way. The other day, two of my boys were trying to negotiate getting their back scratched. And so one simply said, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. They were learning all about the social contract early on. How to negotiate a deal. But we can hold God under no such obligation. He is simply the Lord. When he gives, he does not need anything back. There is no negotiation here. He gives out of mercy. He says, I am the Lord. And he goes on, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He is the one who, who rescued Abram, rescued him from blindness, from darkness, from ignorance, from idolatry. And I love this because Moses is writing the book of Genesis to the people of Israel after they have escaped Egypt. Sometime, most likely, while they are wandering in the wilderness. And can you imagine the first time reading this as an Israelite? And you have fresh on your mind Sinai and that experience there where God descends in Exodus chapter 20 verse 2. We read that God tells the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that description of the Lord is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't change. God is always the one who rescues us. He is always the one who works for us. And he is the one doing it here. And, and they must have immediately identified with Abram. Just as God brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, so he brought us out of slavery to Egypt. He rescued Abram, so he rescues and delivers us. What defines the people of God in every age is the grace and mercy of God. We see what God does. God doesn't just bring Abram out of Ur to simply wander. Some of us may believe at times that God's intentions for us, he, he has saved us, he's worked so many things for us, but now we may feel abandoned. Life is, is, is collapsing around us. The walls are closing in. Where is the Lord in all of this? And here Abram, in the middle of this pagan land, where he owns not one square inch, God says, I have brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. God is the one who assures Abram of a bright future. No matter what Abram had in Ur of the Chaldeans... This is far better. This is far better. 
And this is something you and I must remember as well. Whatever may have anchored Abram there, he had to give up to come to the land where God was calling him to this bright future that God had in store for him. And sometimes we are, we are like, I don't have any little girls, but we are, we are like little girls who are wearing jewelry that has been given to us, fake jewelry. You know, it's turning our fingers green, our, our necks green because it's, it's not real. And yet we, we don't understand that our dad wants to give us something genuine and worthwhile. And we we suspect that when he tells us to give him the ring off our finger that he is trying to deprive us of something when in reality he is calling us to something better. And this self-revelation of God is meant to shape how Abram sees his present situation. To see his present life in light of who God is. Not the Lord in light of his present situation. Two dramatically different things. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we find it so very easy to view God in terms of how well life is going, rather to view our lives in terms of who our God is. This self-revelation starts this interaction. And Abram's response here as I said before, is to raise concerns and doubts once again. Verse 8, And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Abram is asking for evidence here. And this raises a difficult question because two verses earlier, in verse 6, we're told Abram believed the Lord and God credited to him as righteousness. And here we're told Abram It seems, God, where's the land? Where's the promise? He's asking, raising doubts, raising questions. And just like last week, when we may have suspected God to come in, hands raised, why would you question? We we may ask that again. We may expect that again. But one of the things that we need to see here is that Abram is still believing and trusting in the Lord, and yet he still has these questions. There are still human doubts that that do worm their way at times. Sometimes we as Christians can hear the questions of others and act, ah, if you really believed the Lord, you wouldn't ask that question. When I was growing up, Grew up in a Christian home, regularly going to church. And it did seem at times that you ask certain questions, you ask questions that you might have, and you were immediately suspected of not being a Christian at all. And so people learned either to keep the questions to themselves, as I did, or to just rebel. I'm so thankful for a, a man who, while I was a teenager, invited us over to his, invited me over to his home, and we would talk about Scripture, and a Bible study began to start, and he would encourage us to ask our questions. And he was confident, and he taught us to be confident that the Word of God could handle it. 
That God himself isn't threatened by our questions. God is not irrational. Faith is not meant to to be mere blind, a step in a leap in the darkness. We have a, a reasonable faith. And so Abram asks, and the Lord doesn't crush him for it. Indeed, the Lord again treats him merciful. And we'll see the, the promise that God makes. God doesn't back down off his promise. You can see at the end of the chapter in verses 18 to 21, in fact, God once again expands on it. He's, he's not, well, okay, Abram, I did say I was going to give you this land. Maybe it's not going to be as big as I may have led you to believe. No, he, he expands on it. Verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Ken- these are the people, the groups that are living in the land of Canaan at this time. This is their land. They own it. But God is saying their land will now become your land. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and all the other ites that may be living there. And the Lord binds himself to Abram through these covenant promises. And this covenant, God is promising to establish his people in his place such as has not happened since Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve, God's people, were in the garden, God's place. God doesn't stop there. He gives some broad outlines of how he is going to bring this out. He wants to prepare Abram for the fact that this isn't going to happen in his lifetime. This is generous, by the way. But he, he, he reveals to him what is coming. Verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly, without a doubt, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. So he doesn't tell them it's Egypt. But he just says they will, they will be strangers in a land. They will serve them. They will be slaves there. And they will be slaves there for 400 plus years. And then verse 14. And also the nation whom they serve... I will judge. There is the ten plagues. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. We see each of these things happening. In fact, we look back and we say, oh, yes, God did it. The people of Israel would have said, oh, my word, God told Abram he was going to do this. This is incredible. Verse 15, God reveals his plan for Abram. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And maybe the question that Abram has, and maybe you are asking, is why why God doesn't do all this sooner? Right? I mean, we, we saw in chapter 14, this impossibly powerful army coming into the land, conquering everybody. And as they're leaving, partying on their way home, Abram, with a couple other, with the help of a few other tribes, comes in and decimates everybody. And if he could do that, why not begin a, a war campaign and, and, and take the land now? Why put this off 400 years? Why, why put the people of Israel through all the torture and the injustice and the slavery that they will go through? 
Why not simply take the land now? And we see in verse 16 the answer for this. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Why in the fourth generation? Why, why 400 year plus years later? For the iniquity of the Amorites, that is the people groups within the Canaanites, within the land of Canaan, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we see here is two things about God. The first is that he is just. He is just. The reason he is giving, the reason he will bring the people of Israel into the land and and cause them to drive out the inhabitants is that he is acting on behalf of justice. That these nations are going to grow to be so wicked, so evil, so filled with injustice and sin that the only just response is that someone come in and judge them as his hammer of justice. And God is promising that the people of Israel will be his hammer of justice against the evil people groups in this land. But justice isn't merely about doing the right thing. It is about doing the right thing at the right time, isn't it? And in the right way. And so it will be 400 plus years before that time comes to fulfillment. That is before the sin of this people has reached its point of completion. And God is patient. God is patient. He is just and he is patient. We may sometimes look out in the world and we may see those who are doing wrong, those who are living against what we see in Scripture. They may seem to prosper for a time. And we may think, Huh, perhaps God isn't just. What we ought to think is that God's justice is being measured out by his patience. Whatever revulsion we may have, however appalling we may find what we see on the daily news or read about online, we can be sure that the holy God who sees and knows everything is infinitely more angered by what he sees going on in the world than we are. He is transcendently holy. He is perfect in righteous, righteousness. And he sees everything clearly. And yet he is patience. He is patient. He will not sweep. He will not sweep the evil and the injustice and the sin of this world under under the cosmic rug, so to speak. He is not the the great grandfather in the sky who's it's okay, don't worry about it. I love you anyway. Give me a hug and go home and your parents can discipline you. He is holy and just. And he is patient. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And we would be mistaken if we see God's patience and we mistake it 
for neglect. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, and we might say God's kindness and forbearance and patience, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God is just and he is patient. And this must have been both a comfort and a warning to Abram. Because for God to be just, as much as it would have encouraged him, it would have warned him against his his own sinfulness. What separates Abram from these other groups? Has he not sinned? Has he not committed idolatry? And yet God makes this covenant with him, and it is significant. Look with me at verse 9 through 11. So the Lord, so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him. That's Abram bringing all of these to the Lord. And and. And Abram cuts them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two, but he, he kills them. He just doesn't cut them in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is why I said before, this is an, an odd ceremony for us. I'm guessing and I'm hoping that none of us have ever enacted something like this. It's odd for us for for a number of reasons. It's unusual because of how bloody it is. And we are not really used to this. Some of you men are hunters. You're used to going out hunting, maybe butchering your own animals, taking care of it. Some of you have uh, farms, sheep, in which you have done this. Chickens. Most of us these days, we want meat. Let's go to the frozen section. Let's go to the meat aisle. We're not going out back and I really want a hamburger. I guess we're going to kill George. Hey, you, 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 we, are, we have distanced ourselves from that. So we read this and we're, we're immediately thinking, what is happening here? It's foreign. This is a foreign culture. But this would have been totally normal for Abram. Remember, this is an agricultural society. Everybody most everybody, would have had farms, would have had animals that they would have had for sacrifices and for food. They didn't have the supermarket that they could run to. So this, despite how bloody it is, this was normal for them. It's unusual for us because it's also foreign. I mean, so so here's the picture. And I'm going to come down for just a moment. 
Here's the picture. We've got animals. He, he takes the animals and he is cutting them in half, which you can imagine that, that must have taken some work. This is not something you do in the next 15 minutes. This is going to take some work. So he takes these animals, he cuts them in half, and he puts half of them, lines them up, one after another, on one side, and he takes the other half of those animals, and he lines them up on the other, on the other side. And so there is in the, this middle a, a kind of walkway that forms, a, a bloody walkway that forms. And this is foreign to us, but it wouldn't have been foreign to Abram. In fact, what we have is historical records of treaties, agreements between two leaders or people groups being conducted like this. That is, what would happen is that two groups coming together, two kings coming together, trying to establish peace. They would, and we have historical records of them, lining up and doing something similar to this, lining up the animals, and then both would walk through together, and they would have made vows. I will do this for you, I will do this for you, and I won't do these things. And the other king, the other leader, he would say, okay, and we will do this, we will do this, and we won't do these things. So they have this agreement, and when they walk down this bloody aisle together, what they are, in effect, saying is, if we break our word, if we break this covenant... Let let it be done to us what we have done to these animals. If we did this at weddings, it would make them a lot more interesting. And we could use the food afterwards for barbecues. So, just an idea for those of you who are considering something in the future. This is incredibly foreign to us, but this would have been normal to them. In fact, it is likely because we know from chapter 14 that Abram had formed some covenants with the peoples in his area. It is possible that he has done this ceremony already. We have indications of history where this has been done not just between two kings or two countries, but between three parties. So you have one superpower who stands in and he... Uh, He he observes and watches the two of his vassal cities, two of his undergroups who have been at war with one another. He brokers the peace between them. And he is the one who says, I will do to you what you have done, what you have vowed, if you break those vows today. And we also have indications of, of a sovereign superpower who conquers another city and forces those people to walk through, their leaders to walk down the bloody islands themselves. Because if the superpower breaks his word, what's the little guy going to do? Nothing. And so he'll force the, the leaders of that city, that country, that region, to walk the bloody isle themselves, taking on themselves the repercussions of breaking their word. We even have this example in Scripture, in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 34, 8 to 22. God had worked and, and, and brokered, a, a, not brokered, but he had uh, established a covenant with the people of Israel at that time, in the time of Jeremiah. And part of what they were supposed to do at that time was to free all of their slaves. They had been keeping their slaves rather than freeing them. And the Lord was intending them to honor the year of Jubilee. And so he had commanded them as a part of this covenant to free the slaves. 
And the people, in, in obedience, had, they had vowed to free the slaves. They had vowed other vows. And they had walked the bloody aisle. They had cut animals in half and walked the bloody aisle themselves to commemorate this. And they freed their slaves initially. But soon after, you can imagine all the things that they used to have someone else do for them. Now they got to do for themselves. So soon after, they went and they took back their slaves. So we read in, this, in these verses, in verses 18 to 20, the Lord saying, I will give the men who have broken my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. They were going to take the repercussions of breaking their vows to the Lord. They're going to take that on themselves. So this covenant, though it is foreign to us, it would have made sense to Abram. He and the Lord, the Lord is going to make and establish a covenant with him. He cuts the animals in half, lines them up on either side, forms that bloody aisle, that bloody walkway through. But something happens that Abram could never have expected, and this is what makes all the difference. I want you to notice who passes through. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So we have this smoking oven, which you're not supposed to think of that thing that you've got in your kitchen, okay? This isn't the GE appliance. That that, that would indicate a problem. In the ancient world, an oven was a a large earthenware vessel. There would be a a little fire pit inside that they they would put wood or whatever. They would light it on fire with the torch, and it would heat up the, the surface of this earthenware vessel, and they would take little knee, take dough, and they would slap it on the inside of the oven all around. And as it would cook that bread, they would peel it off, and that would be their bread for food. That was their oven. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't electric. Well, here we have a smoking oven and a burning torch, two images, fire and smoke, that indicate the presence of God. In fact, you can imagine yourselves, those first readers, those people of Israel, they would have been very well familiar with the idea that God, in the smoke, in the fire, those, those indicating his presence. They would have seen him in the cloud that led by day and in the fire that led by night. They would have seen him on Mount Sinai descending smoke and fire on Mount Sinai. Two, these two images picture the presence of God. And it is God alone who passes through the bloody walkway. It is God alone who walks down the bloody aisle himself. What is in fact being said here that is so earth shattering, so stunning, so astounding is that it is not Abram and God walking down together in effect saying whoever breaks the, 
the, the, the, the, the terms of this agreement, the terms of this covenant, they will reap on themselves the, the response, the, 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 the judgment that they deserve. No, it is God walks it down himself saying, you will break the terms of this covenant, you will sin, you will do evil, and yet I will be the one to bear the burden of it. God is taking on himself and promising to bear himself the offense and the penalty that Abram himself deserves. This is nothing short of the gospel. This is nothing short of what you and I must hope in entirely. Hope with God, our hope with God, cannot, must not rest in anything we contribute. Our present relationship with God is not founded, is not started, nor is it continued on anything you may do. Our hope with God rests entirely on the mercy of God. For at the cross, our Savior walked the bloody walkway for us. He hung there on the cross for us. He bore sin's price for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is on the cross, which this, this pictures here in Genesis 15, this is a pale picture of what Christ will fully and finally complete at the cross. We have at the cross a massive exchange where Christ, the Holy One, dies in the place of sinners and our guilt is put on His account and His righteousness is credited to those who believe. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for the guilty. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Christ has died in our place that we may be accepted. So our security before God this morning is not Founded is not grounded in anything we do. Young people, adults, your assurance that God will accept you if you have trusted in Christ is not that you said the right words when you prayed long ago. It's not in some religious experience that you may have had at some point. It's not in anything you have done or anything your parents have done. It's not in your religious works or something a religious 
person has said about you. Our assurance before God rests entirely on the finished work of Jesus. One day we will stand before him. And we will be able to say, nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. We do not secure ourselves in good standing with God. God has done that through his son's death on the cross. He hung alone on the cross so that we forever may sit at the table of our Father. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you have never put your faith in Christ Jesus. Let me urge you today to do just that. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And when, and when Peter says he might bring us, that he's not saying that there's a level of doubt there. That he's not introducing some uncertainty. In fact, the way that that's written is, is almost as saying he very much, he, he, he very, very much will bring us to God. It is a, an absolute certainty. It is, he is emphasizing it there. He will bring us to God. Trust in him today. And for you who have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are at this very moment justified, declared righteous in God's sight. You may not feel justified, and there may be others who look at you and say, how could you be justified? But God is not asking them for their opinions. We do not get in God's good grace by taking a poll of what others may think or say. If we have trusted in Christ, we are justified, we are forgiven, we are accepted, we are washed, we are made holy in the sight of God. So no longer, brother and sister, no longer work for the favor of God. Work in light of the favor of God. We're no longer living on the treadmill trying to do enough and go far enough and, and go fast enough so that God will be pleased with us. No, we, we live because in Christ God is pleased with us. There is nothing more to earn. There is only everything to delight in. A few centuries ago, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Someone wrote to him asking, will, when we get to heaven, will our sins be remembered? Will we remember our sin? Will God remember our sin? Will that be something that kind of hangs in the back of our minds, at times sneaking up on us and bringing and flooding back to us in the, in the hidden moments of heaven, shame and guilt? And John Newton responds beautifully. He writes, God, God cannot forget our sin. God, God forgets nothing, but he always sees us through Christ as, our, as the lens in which we stand. We are united with him. And for us, there will be times when we remember our sin, 
when we remember our guilt, yes, but not in any way that will decrease our joy in God, but only that which will increase our joy in God. And he compares it to the way that the, that the Israelites coming out of the land of Egypt viewed the armies of Pharaoh. Before they crossed the Red Sea, the armies of Pharaoh terrified them. They were a present reality. And that is how we see our sins now. They haunt us. They threaten us. They, they threaten to overtake us. But in heaven, we will see them as if we have crossed to the other side of the Red Sea. And we will see them no more threatening. We will see them only through the watery depths of the Red Sea. And we will then rejoice. For our sin has been drowned. Our sin has been washed. Our sin has been taken for us. In fact, in heaven, our remembrance of sin will not hinder our joy, but it will cause us to rejoice all the more because we will see what God has saved us from. All because our Savior walked the aisle himself. So we might sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. 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 What a Savior. Let's pray. Our God, we are humbled this morning. We are humbled that you would notice us. We are humbled, our God, that you would love us. We are broken in knowing that you have sent your Son to pay our sin's price. You, O God, have done what we could never do ourselves. Thank you. Let us live this week in light of your sacrifice. Let us live in light of our Savior. Let us live with an earshot of Calvary. Amen.